Let's see what the stew has in store for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew. So I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the judicious Jennifer Kathleen, the superb Sam G, and the astounding Amadeo Rosa. Today, we have myself, Ange, along with Jared and JT, and we are going to talk about how to balance the GM's plot and plans with the player's agency. Before we dive into that topic, though, we're going to ask a get-to-know-a-gnome question, which today is, tell us about a game you ran where everything went completely sideways and was nothing like you planned. JT, I'm going to start with you. All right. So this is D&D 3.0 days. That sounds right. Yeah, because it was the return to the Temple of Elemental Evil by Monty Cook, which is a great, great campaign for for that era. Uh, I had a lot of fun running it. I've run it twice. But the first time I ran it, the players had uh, read some article somewhere or a blog post. I, I, I forget the source material, but basically it's retreat forward is the concept. When you are absolutely certain as the group that you are about to win this fight, before you finish the fight, you open the next door and keep rolling. You retreat forward through the dungeon. And in theory, it gets you through the dungeon faster and without increasing the danger level too much. (laughs) Yes, yes. I don't understand the logic. Yeah, so I was unaware of this article. I was unaware of the concept of retreat forward. They did not inform me ahead of time they were going to do this. The the group consisted of seven players or eight players, something like that. I'm going to say seven. And four of them were in on this. Like, they discussed it before I showed up. (laughs) So they had their maniacal plans. And sure enough, they kicked down the door of room number one. And I believe they're still in the moat house of uh, Return to Temple of Elemental Evil, which is just outside Hamlet. And they fairly easily defeated the, the first group and there were still like two bandits left right one was pretty badly injured the other guy was like untouched and these four players all look at each other with this like conspiratorial look and i was like oh what are they doing what are they doing and one of the players says well i run over to that door and i open it and i'm like but you're not done with this oh, oh okay again player agency like something we're going to be talking about right i hadn't planned for them to open the next door yet but they did and of course they go charging in they, they leave like two party members behind to mop up the, the remaining bandits and the rest of the group charges into the next room and there's more bandits there because the, the moat house is full of bandits that, that's the theme of the moat house in uh, temple of elemental evil and they get that group down to like one or two guys left and they run and open the next door and they end up Daisy chaining like four or five rooms all together in one big, long, drawn out combat. No new initiatives rolled, just we, the combat never stopped. And they ended up burning through probably 90% of what I had read of the adventure and prepped for in the span of 40 minutes. And we usually played for about three hours, three to four hours. And when everything was said and done, I was like, what did you guys just do? And they all smiled and they were all happy. They were like gleeful little children that had cooked mom, you know, uh, <laughs> breakfast on her birthday and not made a mess of it. Uh, and they were like, we retreated forward. And I stopped. And I was like, what the hell is that? So then they tell me about the article they had read. And I was like, oh, that's horribly stupid. But OK, it worked for you. And from that point forward, they did the retreat forward through the oh. entire like 80 something page adventure. And it. For the most part, worked. The gnome rogue did get into deeper trouble than he anticipated when he retreated forward solo into the Medusa. <laughs> 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 so, 
so uh but yeah that that's one time where i i had no idea what was going on i i was totally out of control in that session and once i kind of got used to the rhythm of it i i i was good but that initial shock was oh it, it still baffles me to this day why they even tried it but they pulled it off so there you go <laughs> i mean to be completely fair i might have been tempted to be like well that's great you guys got through all the material I prepared. <laughs> so let's get a pizza and watch a movie now. Yeah, that's more or less what happened that first time. After that, I, I, I caught on to what they were doing. So I read even further ahead in the, the pre-published <laughs> adventure than I typically do. So uh, so yeah, that, that, that first night of Retreat Forward was just, it blew my mind. <laughs> How about you, Jared? What, 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 what's one time the players just completely went sideways on you? What's funny is my brain was but it was like bouncing back and forth between three different times. And I was trying to figure out which one I was going to present. I think I finally settled on it. I was running uh, infinite galaxies at a convention, which is a PBTA space opera game. You know, it's PBTA. So in general, I never make something highly detailed. Anyway, I just have a broad outline. They were going to be picking up something from one rebel cell to drop it off to another rebel cell while the evil oppressive corporation that, you know, had their own, you know, private military was going to try and board them and they were going to have to deal with that in between dropping it off. One of the players, as I am describing, in the, the first like 15 minutes of the session that their ship is sitting there on the docks and they're waiting for their contact to show up to drop them off the material, decides that his character is going to run off and try and score some drugs. <laughs> okay. And that character ended up selling the material that the the rebels dropped off for them in order to pay for his drugs. Oh, no. At which point the session <gasps> suddenly became them having to do a job for a crime lord in order to get this person out of trouble because they had <laughs> dug themselves so deep in that first half hour of the session that the entire group couldn't do anything else other than deal with that person having gotten into trouble. Oops. <laughs> they finally, they make a drop on this one planet and it was kind of, it, it reminded me, you know, in my head, I'm picturing the whole uh, Firefly thing when they're on the, the one uh, desert and they, you know, Mal and, you know, are out there with the uh, the thing and they have somebody on the ridge keeping an eye on what's going to happen and everything. Except at the end of this, everyone on the ship left the guy that left to get the drugs on the ship and took off <laughs> at the end of the session. <laughs> Which would have been more of a problem had this not been a convention game, because I didn't have to worry about dealing with any of this next week. Right? <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> okay, and what about you? For a period of time, my go-to for convention games was uh, Doctor Who, uh, Doctor Who Adventures Time and Space. My very first scenario that I ran was super loose. It was kind of a loose ex you know, excuse to get these characters together for the first time and go do time wibbly wobbly shenanigans. The loose scenario was that time rifts were opening up around San Francisco and they had to deal with the stuff coming out of them, but also figure out what the source was and stop it. That was literally the extent of my notes on this scenario. <laughs> other than that, one of the time rifts had to have a dinosaur come out of it. Yeah, that, that was pretty much the extent of my notes. Now, these characters were all, they all had a backstory, but were like, there was enough room for the players to throw their own, you know, flavor onto these characters. One of these characters was called the Gambler. The Gambler was basically a riff on Captain Jack from Doctor Who. So someone from the far future, someone who loved to flirt, someone who used to be a time agent, 
and had decided to retire by going back in time and living off the riches they made off of betting on stuff they knew would win. Well, in the gambler's backstory, it said that they came here and were getting themselves set up nicely in Vegas when after a night with a pretty redhead, or I should say an attractive redhead, they uh, woke up the next morning to find that their vortex manipulator was gone, their almanac of sports wins in the early 2000s was gone, and their (laughs) pants were gone. (laughs) You know, this is the backstory of this character. I'm running this session. It's probably about the third time I've run this scenario when all of a sudden we're about about an hour in, they've dealt with their dinosaur, like we've I've gotten that scene in, and we're moving on to other stuff to try and track down what is causing these rifts. When all of a sudden the player that was playing the gambler turned to me and she's like, oh, could these rifts be caused by somebody using a vortex manipulator that they don't know how to manipulate? <laughs> nice. I was like, that is a way better idea than I had in my head. So I'm like, yes. (laughs) And the rest of that scenario came them going back in time to, I don't know the exact year, 1912. It was a year a big earthquake hit San Francisco, 1918, 1912, something like that. Huge earthquake hit San Francisco. Lots of buildings were destroyed. So the pretty redhead was basically trying to rob some banks their loss would never be covered because it was lost in the rubble. (laughs) And so they basically had to go back in time to that San Francisco, find the redhead, get the vortex manipulator back and all get out of there before the earthquake happened. Nice. That was not anything remotely like what I had written down (laughs) on the piece of paper in front of me. But that was what that session became. Still sounds fine. (laughs) And I did a quick Google. It was 1906. (laughs) You know, it's what it's in my notes. I have it down somewhere, but like for some reason, my brain can never remember that exact date. <laughs> so moving on to our main topic, we thought it would be fun to have a talk about how to handle crafting plots and storylines as a GM, but still giving your players agency that lets them affect and change the story of the game. We've all heard or experienced our own stories of railroad games where the GM forced you to do only what they had planned for the players to do. But at the same time as GMs, we've also experienced what happens when the players take the game too far away from the material you've got prepared. So how do you balance these two worlds? Let's discuss. Jared, I'm going to poke at you first. How do you handle this? So one of the things that I try and do in most of my campaigns, and this is going to vary depending on the genre and the actual game that you're playing, but I try to think if I'm going to have like a campaign villain to have an idea of what their final goal is. It's not necessarily what's happening at the moment. It's what are their long-term plans and anything that the PCs do that might foil short-term plans or different lieutenants, that is all fine. It just makes that villain alter how they're trying to get to that final plan. I think the important part there is to remember the villain should have an outcome they want, not a specific way they want that outcome to happen. If it's all got to be this one ritual, that makes it a lot harder if your PCs ruin the site where that ritual has to be performed to have that ritual happen. But if they want to perform that ritual so that they are in charge of, say, this one monster that they want rampaging, if the goal is to have power over something really powerful that, that you know they can use as a weapon, that's what they're going to keep doing. Not necessarily the ritual that you originally thought was going to give them control of this specific monster. You almost have to keep going back to the villain's mindset and thinking, how am I still going to do this thing that I'm doing 
now that they have cut off this avenue to me until the point when it's just like critical mass and you have to let the PCs directly contend with that villain. Yeah. But I think that's a big thing is if you're going to have a, a campaign length villain is to get in their head and know what they want on top of everything else. You know, it's, it's kind of like that whole big picture thing, but then putting them far enough out of the picture so that you don't have to do all that material in the first session that you play. What about you, JT? How do you handle this type of thing? So we've been talking a lot about plot. So I looked up the definition of it. So I'm going to, I'm going to sit in Phil's chair for a moment and do the definition <laughs> panda thing. Behold, you are in the presence of definition panda. So in, in relation to our context, the proper definition would be the main events of a play, novel, movie, or similar work devised and presented by the writer as an interrelated sequence. So there's a lot to break down there. <laughs> so it's basically a series of events created by one person. I don't come up with a plot for my role-playing sessions because I like the collaborative storytelling angle of role-playing. That's really what drives me to the table. So when I'm working on you know, my own writing, yes, I have a plot. I'm an outliner. Uh, I have a very detailed outline, probably too detailed according to most people, but it keeps me on track. I, I'm sorry. There's 400 rows in my spreadsheet for my outline. It, it just that's how my that's how my brain works. I believe it. This is a a paraphrasing a Phil quote, but the right amount of prep is the prep that you need to feel comfortable running a game. Yes. And if those 400 lines in a spreadsheet are what you need <laughs> to comfortably run a game, then that is the right amount of prep. Well, that's not for a game. That's for my writing my novels. Ah. So when I come to a game session as the game master, I don't have a plot. I have a plan. Which, of course, the famous quote is, no plan survives <laughs> contact with the enemy, which I expect. That is my anticipation. I show up with a series of potential events, not a series of events. And if the players stumble and bumble and roll their dice and make their choices through what I have planned, great. That's easy. I mean, that's an easy session to run, right? If they hang left where I thought they were going to hang right, okay, uh, that's where improv skills come in. So I don't plot my role-playing sessions so much as plan them, and I think that's an important distinction to make. I do think the term plot, as far as what we do as a GM, is kind of a misnomer, but it is it is kind of the common term that you use, which is why I use it. it. But I do agree yeah. with you that it's not quite the... It's not the exact parallel as what you would do if you're writing a book or a play sure. or a movie or whatever. It's kind of you want certain story beats to happen. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to this exact thing is going to happen in the campaign. There's an alternate definition to plot that might actually fit a little closer. A plan made in secret by a group of people to do something. And of course, it goes on to say illegal or harmful. You know, we're, we're not plotting against our players. If you are plotting against your players, I'm sorry, but you're not doing it right. You know, you, you want to plan obstacles and dangers and uh, confrontations and things like that. But you don't want to plot against mm. them. You don't well, want it to be a adversarial relationship. That's a whole other topic, but it makes me think about the advice to GMs to try and course correct a bad player through the game and it's like yeah. that never works yeah no that does not work you cannot fix a bad player by doing bad stuff to their character in the game <laughs> that, that's just that right. don't fix something in the social contract with game rules because that's not what the yeah. game rules were designed <laughs> that's, for that's not what it's for <laughs> that is a great distinction to make yeah <laughs> i think a lot of what i do as far as this go is i tend to treat my plot as components 
And I know there's people who will rail against, I think the term for it is Schrodinger's ogre. Like, it doesn't matter which way the players go, the ogre is going to be there. It's like, that's not what I do. But I will have various components and ideas for things that I think the players could run into and interact with. And sometimes they'll get moved around a little bit. Going back to what Jared said, I think the most important thing is like have a, a strong understanding of what is happening in the setting, what is happening with the NPCs, and what is happening with ever, whatever MacGuffin that is kind of the catalyst for the game. When I set up one-shots, I will have an inciting incident where like I have a scene in mind where like the game is going to start. I get the players into that scene because, you know, they're there for the game too. They're let, willing to let me put that in that position, start the inciting incident, and then I know what the clues they're going to find are. I just don't necessarily know where they're going to find them or when they're going to find them or how they're going to interpret them when they get them. And I will roll with it as far as that goes. I always find it interesting um, running certain one shots multiple times because I get to see what different players do with the same information. And I think that's a that's a good thing to do. Like if you enjoy running one shots, if you enjoy running at conventions, run the same scenario multiple times and see how different players interact with it. Because that'll teach you a lot about how to plan a game without planning it as a railroad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And on the, the agency side of things, I typically let the players have free reign. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, I, I will give them hints and clues and nudges to go a certain direction. At the end of the day, it's their decision to, to go there or not, or do this or not, or whatever. If I have a problematic player who won't take the bait, especially at the start of a campaign, I throw some pretty easy bait out at the start of a campaign just to kind of get the momentum going, you know, get the group rolling, especially if it's a new group with like, you know, uh, players that don't know each other. Uh, I don't so much have that problem these days. So my gaming group is very stable, but years past, I could be gaming with who knows who. So I throw out the easy bait and I had one guy... I showed up at the table with four potential starter adventures, not because I wanted to plan four different things for them to do. I just didn't know which one I wanted to run. <laughs> and so I, eeny, meeny, money, picked that one and ran with it. And this one player was like, nah, don't feel like it. Okay. So eeny, meeny, money, I picked, you know, adventure number two. And we finally burned through all four of them. And all four of them, he was like, nah, don't feel like it. And I looked at him and I was like, nah, don't feel like gaming with you, man. <laughs> You know, sorry, but it, and like, you know, Jared said, you can't game mechanic your way out of a social contract. In this case, I couldn't game plan or game plot my way out of a problematic player. Yeah. So I looked at the guy and I was like, yeah, don't feel like gaming with you. Sorry, but, you know, it's time for you to leave. And we happened to be gaming at my house at that time. So he, he grumbled a little bit and packed up his stuff and left. And I refocused and recentered. And this was like an hour of our four hour session mm. gone with this guy going, "Nah, I don't want to. I'm like, cool. That's your choice. And so reset, went back to the, the remaining players. Uh, I guess there were four players left at the table. And I was like, all right, of the four adventure ideas that you have heard, which one do you want to do most? And they kind of talked amongst themselves and they picked one. I was like, great. You return back to the merchant's house where <laughs> you had originally met him. That was the origin of the plot hook, right? You talk to him again. And he's willing to take you on board as uh I forget what the the stupid little adventure was, but you know, a little basic first level D and D adventure and off they ran and we played together for a while and we had a good time. At some point I just had to, I had to bounce a player. I, I think we also sometimes get trapped into thinking about things inside boxes instead of outside boxes. And what I mean by that is when we talk about player buy-in, we start thinking about in the game session, 
if I present you with this, you're going to do what I'm hoping that you're going to do, where I've put energy and effort into. But really, a lot of that actually comes from session zero. That is like an instance where you can present to your players, you know, kind of like, you know, with Ange, the game that, you know, all of you are part of. When we had our session zero, I was like, I kind of want to do this as you are working as agents for a regional ruler in the Marodi Empire. That's the instance where players can say, oh, that sounds really fun, or that's not really what I wanted out of this game. So that buy-in actually starts before you have a regular session. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My event happened way before I even knew what session zero mm. was. So <laughs> I, I didn't have the benefit of, of, of that practice <laughs> that I do now. So uh, live and learn, right? Live and learn. When I'm setting up a campaign, I will I'll do what Jared described. I will give the opening scenario the reason these characters are going to be working together up front. Like in my latest Eberron campaign, it is you guys are all competing to be part of an expedition to Zendrick. I don't care why your character wants to go to Zendrick. I don't care who your character is, although don't be evil, <laughs> uh, and basically make a character that wants to join this competition to get to go to Zendrick. The rest will fall into place after that. And I've learned with my convention one shots, be very upfront with the players about, you know, like, don't give them a chance to opt out of the plot. Yeah. I've had that happen with bad players. Another one of my Doctor Who scenarios uh, is the birds of Alcatraz. Something weird is happening with the birds on Alcatraz. One of the PCs that's available to play is the veterinarian. So, of course, I'm going to throw this hook to the veterinarian. And the first time I ran it, I had a player who was not the most socially adept person pick up the veterinarian because the veterinarian is a former companion of the doctor, which they absolutely loved. And I said to them, OK, your friend reaches out to you. Your conservation friend reaches out to you about some weird things happening with the birds on Alcatraz. And she would like you and your friends to investigate. Who do you call first? And I gesture to the rest of the table <laughs> and the player goes i call an npc friend and i'm like <laughs> you, you what uh -oh. i'm gonna call this npc and like for 15 minutes i kept trying to get this kid to stop investigating on his own and actually call one of the other pcs i turned to the person who was playing the artist who is a psychic and i'm like you have a vision. You need to gather everyone and get to the docks. And that one being an older player who's slightly more away, she's like, yes, I call everyone, including the cop who's like, I don't want to go. You need to go. You're in my vision. Um, you know, so I had a player who was playing the reluctant character who didn't want to go on the adventure, but the player still put his character into the adventure to go for the fun. Whereas the other kid was just like, after that, every time I've run that scenario, I start it with, the veterinarian has gathered you all at the docks. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yep. Yep. In Meteora, uh, start, uh, starting with some action. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, let's just get to the meat. <laughs> yeah. I, I ran a one shot for uh, game day at my local game store, and they wanted me to run a D&D &D game. This is fairly recent. Maybe actually it was right before the pandemic. So it feels like forever ago, but it wasn't really all that long <laughs> ago. And I had a little mini session zero baked into the game. Basically similar to you, you're gathered at the docks. In this case, you're gathered at the gate of the castle to go inside and be interviewed by blah, 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 adventuring group. It's a retired adventuring group. They don't, they don't go adventure anymore. They're tired of it. They're just done. So they farm out all the local problems to other adventuring groups because everybody comes to the big adventuring group for, for help. And they're like, nope. So they're like a, a guild of, for adventurers, <laughs> so to speak, right? 
so the the group files in and the uh wizard you know pops a monocle in his in, in his eye and, and scans them obviously scanning for like magic and powers and abilities and things like that and starts going through a sheaf of papers i actually had the sheaves of paper in front of me i, I took some uh, uh old parchment it nothing was on <laughs> the parchment because you really couldn't you know because I, I i didn't i didn't go that depth in depth to it but i was i would made yes no maybe piles in front of me <laughs> And then went through the maybe pile and added one more thing to the yes and ended up with four adventures, which I, I had all four prepped and planned. And this is kind of where, quote unquote, session zero kicked in. I presented very briefly the four adventures to the, the, the players and said, which one do you want to do? And each one had different like pay rates and danger bonus and <laughs> danger pay and yada, yada, yada. Which job do you want to take? Which job do you want to take? There was per diem and all the numbers were different and all that. And those four I had uh, uh, written out on parchment. And so I tossed them over the GM screen to the, the players and they're handling them. And, oh, this is cool. This is neat. And I was like, there's a whole long line of people behind you who also want jobs. So you, you can't take too long. They'll give you three minutes before they kick you out and you don't even get a job. Because I didn't want them to do analysis paralysis mm -hmm. for an hour. Yeah. And very quickly they picked one. I was like, cool. So they hand me the other three back and... Off we go. And, and and so they all bought in to which one they were going to do. And it also avoided the railroad thing where they showed up and were assigned a job mm -hmm. that they may or may not want to do. So I gave them the, those four options. And, and each adventure, I mean, it's a one shot. So I basically I prepped four one shots for a single session. And that's not too big of a deal for me time wise. I think another thing to keep in mind as a GM is there there is a point of too much freedom for your players. Like your players have signed up for a game, they have signed up for the system you're running, the genre that you're running, which means they're expecting you to present that to them. I know I've struggled with this in my own past as a GM of like wanting the players to want to do the thing, but they're sitting there waiting for me to like give them the setting, give them the game, <laughs> give them a framework to go in. Um, so I think the thing is, is it is okay to have some scenes planned to have certain aspects of the game planned and ready to go to just present to your players and off we go. The key is, is like you need to respect the decisions the players make and the things they attempt in response to what you're giving them. I'm going to give a bad railroad example that I experienced a few years ago. The characters are in a situation where they need to escape a city that's under occupation. It was a World War II base game. Okay. The characters were in Paris. They needed to get out of Paris. And one of the characters that was in the way was a German colonel or something like that who had a thing for my character. So we did this whole intricate plot to basically lure him back to her dressing room and waylay him. We basically knocked him out. We tied him up and we're like on our way. One obstacle out of the way. The very next scene, the GM had that guy show up. Oh, no delay. That was probably the first sign that we were not there to play a game. We were there to witness the GM story. Yeah, sure. And of course, the funny thing is, is the game ended with us on an actual train <laughs> going to a location. And we're just like, yeah, he's like, there's an obstacle in the head. And I'm like, it'll probably move. It's OK. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like if your players do something, you have to kind of. Don't just wave it away because it gets in the way of your plans. You have to adapt and adjust. Like Jared said, you can kill the trusted lieutenants, but maybe the big bad is still out there. And I believe I might have mentioned this game 
on the Gnomecast before, but I was part of a 3-5 game where the DM assigned not player characters, but we all had roles because he had this whole storyline planned out and each of our players were going to be someone in a particular role. You know, I'm like, okay, fine, I'll give him a chance. So I, my character was the bodyguard. And I was like, well, I want to have some fun with this. I want my bodyguard to be a swashbuckler. And the DM was like, well, I don't picture the uh, bodyguard as a swashbuckler. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's like, I was thinking more like a paladin. I was like, do I have to be a paladin? Well, no, but that's more what I had in mind. I was like, well, if you want me to play a specific class, tell me you want me to play a specific class. But if you want me to play a role, you could give me the role and let me do the role how I want to do it. Because I really wanted to play a swashbuckler. And I'm pretty sure I could play a swashbuckler that was also a bodyguard. <laughs> that was a bad, bad game. <laughs> I believe Jerry from Misdirected Mark has a story of a Lord of the Rings style game he was in where none of the players knew the Lord of the Rings at all. None of them. And they basically came across this hobbit who had a magical ring that could make him invisible. And they're like, great, okay. we're going to steal it from him. <laughs> and they basically knock him out and take his magic ring and go on in their way. And the GM was furious, absolutely furious, and finally like exploded at them. You can't do that. That was Bilbo Baggins. You can't take his <laughs> ring. And they're like, what? Who? <laughs> Bubba what? Who? <laughs> Boba Fett? I, I didn't know he was in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's like you, you, you can't put anything in front of your players that can't be changed. Agreed. And if they do change it, you throw canon, quote unquote canon, in front of them, whatever setting it is, like, you know, it, they meet Han Solo in the trashy little bar and they kill him. Okay, Han Solo's dead the rest of the campaign, right? Even if he shoots first. <laughs> I'm probably never going to forgive them, though. <laughs> yeah well uh, but i mean that's that's also one of those things that maybe you want to have a meta discussion about because there are some times when you want someone to have that feeling of the setting and you're trusting that they're not if their characters don't have a reason to kill han and they kill han just because they want to be able to say they killed han why are you doing this you know <laughs> that's fair yeah there there was an, another situation not involving canon characters but a DD game i was in many years ago at a convention where the setup was we were a family of adventurers. We were basically five brothers and a sister who were an adventuring party. And we were basically preparing to leave the city and go off and do something. And the guy who was playing the brother, who was the rogue, decided, I'm going to steal us some horses. So he went off and stole us some horses. And the player who was playing the cleric was, forgive my language, an asshole, <laughs> and declared that he was turning his brother into the city watch. What? At which point, three hours of a four-hour session turned into us trying to figure out how to get our one brother out of jail while keeping the other brother occupied so he couldn't foil our plans. I'm like, this game sucks. <laughs> yeah. But that one player liked to watch the world burn. So he sure. would do things that would completely either... A, mess with the GM's plot in whatever way possible, or B, mess with the other players at the table because that's what he got out of gaming. I unfortunately gamed with that player a few more times <laughs> after that until other people started realizing he was a jerk, but that's a completely different story for another time. Yeah, and a little advice for players out there that I hope are listening to. Of course, if you're a game master, you're going to be a player at some point, I hope, just to prevent burnout, but that's a whole other podcast. But anyway, to players, you don't have to be led by the nose 
but if the game master points in a vague direction, try stumbling over there for a little bit and seeing if it's fun. Don't be an antagonistic player. We, we talk all the time about the antagonistic game master, which of course produces a bad game for the other people at the table. A antagonistic player may only upset the game master or like in Angie's case, it may upset everybody at the table, right? Uh, it, just don't be antagonistic in general, regardless of which side of the screen you're on or where you're sitting at the table. I believe I mentioned in one of my, you know, be a better player articles. It's like, take the plot hooks. <laughs> you know, if the plot hook is absolutely awful and you really, truly have no interest in it, have an out of character conversation with the GM and say, look, I'm just not vibing on what you're offering to us and have a conversation about what's going on in that game. But otherwise, take the plot hooks. Mm -hmm. The GM put the effort into trying to put something together for you and the other folks at the table to play. It doesn't mean every session is going to be great, but you should at least have the courtesy of at least nibbling on the plot hooks. So, Ange, have you had something that you added into a campaign based on player uh, agency that became a major thing in that campaign? Oh, so many times. Let me tell you about Debris. <laughs> In one of my earlier Eberron campaigns, I ran a scene where uh, a bunch of basically organized crime thugs came into the bar to shake down the bartender, who was the friend of the PCs. Um, like, we had established that he served with them in the last war. They were there visiting him. It was after hours. Everyone else was gone. It was just them. These thugs came in to shake them down, including an ogre who was supposed to be their big tough man. And one of the players cast a spell on the ogre that basically, I forget the wording of the spell because this was actually Pathfinder. It made the ogre cry. And so I described the ogre as crying and being afraid and bawling his eyes out. So they didn't kill him. And when the authorities came, the ogre was arrested and the players decided they were going to go bail him out <laughs> and get him a job because he seemed like a decent fellow. And when they bailed him out, they found out his name was Debris because he thought the name was pretty. <laughs> and they basically got him a job at the bar that they had been at as the bodyguard, as the bouncer. And he was paid in cookies. And he became a <laughs> regular recurring NPC in that campaign because the prayers felt bad for making him cry. Very cool. That's a good uh, addition to the game. Yeah. What about you, Jared? Have you ever had one of those? Oh, yeah. I was thinking about um, the 7th C game that I ran. The big overarching plot was that this sorcerer had set loose three undead pirate captains. And we had kind of gotten to the point to where the group was trying to get uh, Avalon and Montaigne to work together to help them, you know, storm this island where the uh, sorcerer had set up shop. But in the interim, one of my players, who was a thief from Montaigne, had fallen in love with a monster hunter from Iceland who became a vampire to help her hunt vampires more effectively. <laughs> and the emperor of Montaigne decided that he wanted to live forever and that, you know, part of his bargaining was going to be to perform this ritual to take the vampirism out of this monster hunter and put it into him. At which point, you know, my player was like, we don't want the emperor of Montaigne to be an immortal vampire. <laughs> so basically, um, he could never have happiness with his love because... She would re forever remain a vampire. And they also had to deal with the uh, Montaigne fleet not playing nice with them as they stormed this island. <laughs> and it made for a really interesting ending to the campaign because the thief was now on the run from, from Montaigne and, you know, he you know lost his love and everything. 
But none of that was planned going into that. It was just going to be like, oh, this will be a fun scene having them, you know, negotiate between Montaigne and Avalon and getting them to work together. And that is not what happened at all. And <laughs> I think the campaign ending was much better for that. <laughs> what about you, JT? Have you had something that your players have done that has, like, changed a campaign? Uh, yeah, actually, I'm going to use an example for me as a player in the current campaign that I'm playing in. Um, we're doing Ardenvul, which is a first edition mega dungeon. Seven books for it. It's not all dungeon. Like one book is all the treasure and one book is all the maps and yada, yada, yada. Right. So, so seven volumes total to, to encompass all the details about the mega dungeon. The cult of set is pretty prominent in the, in the mega dungeon. And we are encountering them where we can to foil their plans. We still don't know what their plans are, but we figure if we kill them, they can't go through with their plans. <laughs> pretty basic. Anyway, we stumbled into a room where a higher level priest of set was right in the middle of cutting somebody's hands off. And we were like, no, don't do that. And he had just done the final swipe of the knife to get the other hand. So he runs away with the hands. So we kind of split the party temporarily. The, the, the healer type stopped with the handless guy because he was still alive to, to heal him. So he wouldn't die. And the rest of his chase down the priest, uh, he ends up, the priest actually ends up setting off a trap he didn't know was there, and the trap killed the priest. We didn't. So we return back to the 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 where the handless guy is at, and we get him back in shape. And turns out he's a uh, adventurer ranger who is now retired because he has no hands. We were not high enough <laughs> level to fix him other than to just keep him from dying. Additional detail, we're building an inn in the town outside Ardenvol because we want a place to retire and relax. <laughs> and we decide that this handless ranger could be our innkeeper. We'd, we'd hook him up with some prosthetic you know, hands mm -hmm. so he could pour drinks and carry mugs and all that until we saved up enough money, 28,000 gold, by the way, to cast <laughs> uh, regeneration on him, to get a scroll of regeneration. And we did so. He, he's got his hands back, but he is so immensely grateful for us not only saving his life, but restoring his hands and all that. We have like a very high level, maybe not very high level. We have a decently skilled ranger is our innkeeper in our inn. <laughs> so that if anybody causes trouble, they're going to regret <laughs> it, even if we're not there. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a, it's a minor shift in the story, but it, it it's a nice little touch. I think we've said pretty much a lot at this point. Are there <laughs> yeah. Any last words on uh, plot versus agency? Just make sure you're listening to your players and taking their input because it's everybody's campaign. We have a tendency from the oldest days in the hobby to think <laughs> of this as the GM's campaign, but it's not. <laughs> um, you're, the GM needs to have fun too, but the players really should be part of that process. What about you, JT? The players should be driving the story, really. I mean, sure, you're going to point them in some directions, set up some foundational elements, do, do all the proper session zero goodies, but where the story leads and how the twists and turns come about, that's more in the player's hands than the game master's if it's being done well. Go with the flow. I don't care which side of the screen you're on. Just go with the flow. It'll be easier. And I think my final word is, it's okay if your players are smarter than you. Yeah. <laughs> they can come up with some really good ideas, and it is totally okay to roll with those ideas. Yes. So, this show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the GM Defense Lawyers. Have your players caused irrevocable harm by rejecting all of your plot hooks yet again? Reach out to the GM Defense Fund where we can force your player to take the plot hook. Call 555-888-888888. If you're enjoying the Gnome Cash, you'll probably like many of the other misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Bonus experience. 
Ray and Monica are two old friends exploring gameplay and design through the lens of diversity while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Gnomes, is there anything else you want to give a shout out to today? Okay, um, I just decided to throw in two of the nerdy apps that I use to track my campaign. So there is a fantasycalendar.com where you can make a calendar for your campaign. And I basically set one up for a Dragonlance campaign, which I am not currently <laughs> running, but it tracks all three of the moons and lets you know whenever there are two or more in conjunction. So it's a pretty neat tool, uh, especially when you want to be able to do that sort of thing on the background up front when you're planning the campaign instead of day by day as you're actually running the game. And the other one is the uh, Goblin's Notebook, which is at um, thegoblin.net slash notebook. Um, and the links to both of those will be in the show notes. JT, what about you? So I'm part of a shared world series of novels. I'm outlining mine right now, so you won't see the actual novels from me for a while. Um, but the ninth book in the shared world series, not really a series because you don't have to read them in order. But anyway, the ninth book in the Eldros Legacy uh, shared world uh, was released today. And by today, I mean when we're recording today. So it'll be available <laughs> for you, the listeners, on the day you're listening to this. The links will be in the show notes, but the book is Ren the Traveler by Todd Fonestock. It's his third Eldros Legacy novel, so it completes his opening trilogy. He has more planned. So the three by Todd, you probably want to read, you know, first, second, third. The remainder can be read more or less in any order. If you go to EldrosLegacy.com, you can find out more information there. And we'll have links in the show notes to the uh, Amazon buy for both the Legacy series and Ren the Traveler. Uh, how about you, Ange? So mine's a little off topic, but I am going to recommend Tasting History with Max Miller on YouTube. He basically takes old recipes, and by old recipes, I mean hundreds of years old, and basically follows the original directions as closely as possible while talking about the techniques and the history of said food. And there's always a history segment where he talks about the culture or the people or the person that is behind whatever recipe He's doing. And the reason I recommend this is because we gamers tend to play around a lot in fantasy settings or historical settings, it could be a good idea to get a look at what food people actually ate uh, and, you know, the different things that that made basically a meal. Because, like, potatoes weren't actually a thing in medieval England. At least I'm pretty sure they're not. They're not. No, they, they're a new world thing and they were imported from the new world yeah potatoes corn totally a new world thing were not around in medieval times so you did not you should not probably have potato stew in your fantasy medieval i mean you could totally have potato stew in your fantasy medieval game you should just understand that like historically there's different foods people ate at different times and his max miller's channel is fantastic i adore his episodes it's worth a watch and you can still have vodka made out of turnips <laughs> I, I like vodka, <laughs> and all of a sudden, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of s potato soup, do you guys think we avoided the stew today? I'm going to use my agency to avoid the uh, the stew pot. Jared, you took the words out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was going to say. 